Friends, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. And if you need a Bible this morning, we've got them for you. Right on the back of the pews in front of you. Uh, the, the section that we're going to look at today is on page 960 of those little Bibles that are in arm's reach. Please do grab one of those. Please do take it with you if you don't own a copy of the Bible. We'd love for you to have that one uh, and to talk to you more about what you're going to hear this morning. Uh, the other day I was laughing with some friends about this one time that uh, my youngest son decided he wanted a disco ball for his birthday to hang above his uh, bunk bed in his room because why not <laughs> and that was inherently funny because disco balls for some reason to me anyways are but the really the really funny part about this disco ball birthday list item is that as soon as he added that item to his birthday list he made sure to specify that if we got him the disco ball Mr. Dave could come over to hang it up. <laughs> Mr. Dave is one of my handiest friends, and it didn't even cross his mind, my sons, that I would try to hang it myself. <laughs> he knew better. He knew that when it comes to handyman projects around the house, at this point in my life, I don't even like to try. And I'm not proud of this fact about me. I'm not going to try to justify this fact about me even now. I'll just simply say it's based on a lot of hard evidence. I mean, a lot of hard evidence. Uh, all my trying over the years has just convinced me of some basic facts about pretty much any handyman project I might try to take up, even hanging a disco ball from a ceiling. Here's what I'm convinced of. This is going to take longer than I think it will. This is going to take more material and more of my money than I think it will. The instructional videos that I will watch on YouTube will make it more complicated, not more clear. And because I don't know what I'm doing, I'm just gonna make this problem worse. When I try to fix it, I will end up ruining it. That is based on lots and lots and lots of experience in my 41 years of life. So much so that I've just concluded in the end, no matter how hard this is, I'm not gonna be able to get it done and I'll just end up calling Mr. Dave or Mr. Isaac or one of my other many handyman friends who happen to show themselves at the wrong time in my text feed. I've got basically two choices, in other words. I can fail after wasting my time, my money and my mental space or I can save myself the trouble and just accept failure now on the front end. Why fail the hard way? when you could just go ahead and fail the easy way. I know how this ends, in other words. What I expect from the future has a tremendous effect on my motivation in the present. Friends, I've seen this same dynamic play out over and over and over again in my own heart and in my ministry to others as a pastor, not with handyman projects around the house, but in the ongoing battle with indwelling sin for Christians. I don't know a more powerful barrier to our growth and holiness as Christians than hopelessness. Especially when the pattern of sin is one you can wrestle with for years, it is just so easy to say, I know where this is going. I've already tried. I can't stop. And it's miserable, miserable to keep trying and failing and trying and failing and trying and failing. I want to change, but I don't think I can. I know how this ends. 
So why keep fighting only to keep losing? Have you felt like that? Have you felt this way before in your battle with sin? Friends, we're now midway through a series of sermons on the hope of heaven where we're taking different texts from all over the Bible that lift up different aspects of what heaven will be for those who belong to Jesus. We're trying to take those bits and pieces of teaching, hold them up to see how beautiful they are, but then also apply them to life now because what we expect from the future has a tremendous power over how we live in the present. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how right at the center of what the Bible teaches about heaven is the promise that God is going to be there. God himself will be there. We will experience his presence directly with no veil in between. And this morning, this morning, I want to show you one specific promise of what the presence of God will mean for those who get to see him there. From 1 John chapter 3, I want to show you that to be in God's presence, to see God face to face as he is, will make us perfectly holy like he is holy. We will, by seeing him, become like him. And this hope purifies us now in the meantime. I want to begin by reading the two verses that we're going to meditate on together this morning. I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that. First John chapter 3, I'm going to read verse 2 and verse 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is God's word. You can be seated. Two simple points this morning, friends. Point number one, in heaven, we will be perfected by sight. In heaven, we will be perfected by sight. Point number two, on earth, we are being purified by hope. On earth, we are being purified by hope. Point number one, in heaven, we'll be perfected by sight. I love the humility in John's setup here. He says, we are God's children now. We're banking on that. We know that much, but we don't know what we'll be like then when Christ returns and we enter his presence in his new world. We haven't experienced that yet. God hasn't told us exactly what we'll be like yet. And there's more that we don't know than that we do know. But here's one thing we know, he says. When he appears, we will be like him because we'll see him as he is. When we see him as he is, will be holy as he is holy. Looking leads to likeness. That's the, that's the first big point that John wants us to understand. Let me break it down for you, two steps, starting at the end, working back. What will seeing God be like for us? When we see him, what will we see? 
John clearly says we're going to see him as he is. And John here is echoing a hope that you'll find all over the Bible. The vision of God. The beatific vision. Seeing God face to face. It's at the heart of what makes heaven heaven. And the longing for that is scattered throughout the Bible. It's central to our hope as Christians. But, but what will it be like to actually see him? When we see him, what are we seeing? And the short answer is, I don't know. I don't know any more than John knows. Nobody knows. I mean, as John put it in his gospel, no one has ever seen God. I mean, we get glimpses in scenes that are scattered through the Bible. There's Moses up on Mount Sinai receiving the law as Israel waits at the base of the mountain watching the glory of God's presence descend on him there. We see we see Isaiah having a vision of God's glory, a, a window into God's throne room in Isaiah 6. We see Peter and the other apostles who were with him at the transfiguration where Jesus is, is somehow transfigured right in front of him. He becomes different than what he was and a glory and a light and a, a brightness and, and, and all of it just carries them away. We've seen that. Of course, we see John's vision in Revelation what these people saw, people like, like Isaiah, people like Peter at the Transfiguration, like Paul on the roads to Damascus, what, what they saw were glimpses of a reality so powerful that Paul was blinded by it when he saw it. A reality so glorious that, that Moses' face shone after he saw it. So consuming that Peter wanted to build a house to contain it and keep it going when he saw it. On, on one level, I mean, these appearances like this that are scattered through the Bible, it, they, they show us that whatever it'll be like to see God, we've never seen anything like it before, that's for sure. And I think that's why John is so humble in verse two when he's throwing up his hands about all we don't know. But on another level, I think appearances like these that are scattered through the Bible shed some light on what to expect. When we... When we see God as he is, whatever it is that we'll be seeing, we will be seeing something so powerful, something so glorious, something so consuming that we could not possibly look away. To see God as he is, is to be utterly captivated by his beauty. So let me pause right here and go ahead and state the obvious Perhaps because of all this, all, all this being so abstract, you know, because it, we haven't seen anything like this before. It, this is also where many Christians struggle, I think, to look forward to heaven. I mean, staring at God all day? Forever? I mean, Isaiah's vision, Isaiah 6, the angels who are serving near God's heavenly throne are ceaselessly crying out, holy, 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 holy. I mean, I love our version of their song. The one we sang this morning is one of my favorite hymns of all. I could probably even sing it again today and really enjoy it, savor it. But ceaselessly? Is that my future too? And you can start to think, if you're honest, well, I have to? Emphasis on the have to. If that's what you're thinking so far, let me turn that back around on you for just a second. Think about this. How beautiful must something or someone be 
If staring and praising is all that you want to do, what if you imagine those angels and their ceaseless song, not as horribly bored, but as inexpressibly, undistractably happy? I wonder, when, when have you been so absorbed by something that you could not possibly be distracted from it? Think about that for a minute. I mean, this is serious. I want you to think about it. When have you been in your life so absorbed by something that you couldn't be distracted by anything I don't know what's be on your list. Uh, I, I have been like that at different times in my life. I think about times when I've been so consumed by the last few pages of a brilliant novel, I could tell you which ones. I can think of moments where it's fourth and goal and the game is on the line. I can think of times when I've seen a sunset from the top of Blood Mountain in North Georgia, looked directly into it and been completely transfixed. I can think of times when I've enjoyed fine meals with dear friends. I can still remember feeling this way when I watched my wife come down the aisle on our wedding day. I don't know what's on your list, but I'll say this about mine. When I think about when I've been completely absorbed by something so that I couldn't possibly be distracted by it, I'll tell you this. If I can't be distracted, I am probably delighted. I am certainly not bored. What will seeing God be like for us? I don't know. But it's safe to say that when we see him, we will be completely absorbed by a beauty of which all other beauty anywhere else on earth is just a faint flickering candle. It's just the faintest shadow. Here's how Jonathan Edwards put it. Talking of those who, who will see him one day. After they've had the pleasure of beholding the face of God millions of ages, it will not grow a dull story. The relish of this delight will be as exquisite as ever. That's what it'll be like to see God. But there's something else John is pointing us to here when he says that we will see him as he is. He's pointing us to what seeing God will do to us. We've already asked what it will be like for us to see God. Now we need to ask, what will seeing God do to us? That's really where John's emphasis lies. When he appears, we'll be like him because we will see him as he is. When we see him as he is, we'll be like him. Seeing him will transform us. That's his main point in this verse. So why? What's the connection between seeing God as he is and becoming like God ourselves? Why does looking lead to likeness? Here's what I think. In heaven, we will look on God as he is and we will so love what we see. We will so love what we see, that the beauty of his holiness will make us holy too. We will be drawn into that holiness like a tractor beam that we can't resist. The force of attraction will make us holy like he is. 
I learned early on as a preacher, I remember early on advice that I got was don't listen to other preachers before you preach your sermon, or at least not before you've written it because it'll mess with what the sermon ends up being. They are so right about that. I learned early on because I didn't take that advice that, that there are some preachers I can learn from along the way to a sermon and some that I can't. They're too dangerous and not because they're going to say anything wrong because I'm not going to be able to unhear what I hear. There's some preachers who are so different from me and how they see things or how the kind of questions they tend to bring or the kind of applications that make sense. I can listen to them and I would think never in a million years would I do that. But boy, I, that was nice. So I'll take that and I'll use it. I can pick and choose between the material that they're, that they're working with because we're real different. There are some preachers that for whatever reason, I just have such a deep resonance with how they see things, what they see, what they wonder about, how they end up explaining things. I cannot unsee it. If I listen to them too early in the week, then my sermon is gonna end up heading into their sermon like water runs downhill. It's magnetic, it's irresistible, it just is what it is. I think what John is saying is that seeing God will have that effect on all of God's children. We will be drawn to his beauty. We'll be, we'll be shaped by his image as naturally and irresistibly as water runs downhill. Here's another way to say the same thing. We've talked about how looking leads to likeness. Those, that's the connection John is making. We'll see him as he is, we'll be like him. What's the link between looking and likeness? The link is love. The link is love. This connection between love for God and obedience to God, between loving him for his goodness and loving to obey him because he says what's good. That link is all over the letter of 1 John. I'm not gonna take time this morning to show you all the places it comes up. It's all over the place in this letter. And the theme is important to John, that, that obedience comes from love because it was important to Jesus. And it's central to the whole Bible. I mean, when Jesus was asked one time about what's the greatest commandment in all the law, his first answer was, you shall love the Lord your God. Love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. All the other commands are just like various expressions of that fundamental love for God. That's why that one matters most. And when we disobey any of those other commands, it comes down to the fact that we've loved something else more than we've loved God. We have not loved him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And that just fits our experience, doesn't it? Brothers and sisters, for now, for now our hearts are battlegrounds for competing loves. I mean, part of the torment of living as a Christian on earth, when we feel that torment, is, is knowing that, the, that our love for God is just too weak and our heads are all too easily turned by one empty promise after another, one competitor after another. I'm just so relentlessly gullible to the deceptions of the evil one. And often we're most disappointed of all in ourselves because we know we ought to know better. That's why Paul's words in Romans 7 are so relatable for so many of us. Paul writing about his experience living as a Christian in a world where he's at war constantly in his own self. He says in Romans 7, I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want to do. The very thing I hate is the thing that I do. For I don't do the good I want. The evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me capture, captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Basically what he's saying is, I'm a mess. I'm just torn up in here. 
and I'm pulled this way when I'm looking at God like I ought to be and I'm opening up his word and I'm with his people. And I'm pulled right back over here when I go out into the world and see how much of my heart still wants what it ought not want. Who will set me free, he said, from this body of death? Have you ever asked that question? I want to be free. I'm sick of it. If you have, you need to know that the peace that you crave will come when he appears. To long for heaven is to long for what Augustine called the cessation of this war. We burn, he wrote, for entrance on that well-ordered peace in which whatever is inferior, all these empty promises that turn our heads but let us down, is forever subordinated to what is above it, God from whom all blessings flow. When he appears, the war will be over. Why? Because the sin in our lives always flows from idolatry in our hearts. We disobey God because we love something or someone else more. But in heaven, when we see him as he is, that will be the end of sin's power for us because nobody can see God as he is and worship any of his competition. When you see him as he is, nothing will ever turn your head again. When we see him as he is, we will finally and forever love him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. Or as Augustine put it elsewhere, on that day when we see him, we will be purified and molten by the fire of his love. All that mess in here will be melted down and unified until we flow together and merge into him. We will be unified in the love for the one who's perfectly lovely. That's what will happen in heaven. In heaven, we'll be perfected by sight. In the meantime, on earth, what now? On earth, John would have us see from verse three, we are being purified by hope. There will be perfected by sight. In the meantime, we are being purified by hope. Look with me at verse three. John turns here from what will be in the future when he appears to what is happening now in the meantime. And he says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Hope in what you will be when you see him can purify you now while you wait. How? That connection, the power and the clarity of hope 
to the ongoing work of holiness in our lives, that's all over the place. That's not just John's. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 3. I'd encourage you, or excuse me, 1 Peter 1. I'd encourage you to look at that later and as a follow-up to this sermon. 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16, same connections. We saw it already a few weeks back in the first sermon in this series. We looked at Colossians 3, where Paul says, set your mind on the things above. And then he goes into all the things to put off on earth and the things to put on on earth. You're going there where Christ is. That's where you're headed. When he appears, you'll be with him. That's what Paul says. So in the meantime, dress appropriately. Put that off, put that on. This connection between hope and holiness is all over the place. And, and I think it's important to say before we even get into it even more, that if you're, if you're not cultivating a focus on that day, the day when we see him as he is, when the hope of seeing God isn't controlling what everything, everything else that you see around you here and now, when, when that focus is not there for you, your head is going to be turned. Again and again and again, your head will be turned by the fool's gold of the world. As Richard Baxter put it, if the mind is either idle or ill-employed, in other words, if we're just kind of rolling with it, we're not paying attention, we're not disciplining our minds to be set on the things above. He said, the devil doesn't need greater advantage. If he finds a mind empty, there's room for anything he wants to bring in. But you know what? The, the, the flip side also holds true. Here's Baxter again. A net or bait that's laid on the ground is unlikely to catch a bird that flies in the air. He's got a point. While she keeps above, she's out of danger. And the higher she is, the safer she is. And so it is with us. Baxter's just agreeing with John. Everyone who thus hopes in him, who sets their minds on the things above, purifies himself as he is pure. So how does that work? I hope that's what you're asking. That sounds great. I'd love to use hope to help me fight sin. How? How does the hope in the promise of perfect holiness in God's presence purify us now in the meantime? That's all we're gonna do for the rest of the time this morning. I see at least two factors buried underneath this verse and its context. What we're hoping for, what we're hoping for, seeing God as he is and therefore being like him shows us how to fight for holiness and why the fight is worth it. How to fight for holiness and why the fight is worth it. First, how to fight for holiness. You remember what we, the connection we were drawing in, in the, 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 the object of our hope when we look about heaven is, or look, look forward to heaven is that we'll see God as he is, seeing him as he is, looking at him will lead us to love him. And because we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we'll be like him. We'll only love what he loves. We won't love any of his competition. That's what's coming. We will see him, therefore be like him because we will love him. So why not get a jump on that? Why not every single day knock over the first domino? Look, 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 look. Why not, knowing that looking is going to lead to likeness, go ahead and look to him where you can already see him? Why not focus your mind on the one whose beauty will make you beautiful? Where can we see God now? If looking leads to loving and loving leads to likeness, where should we start while we wait to see him face to face? Even in a way, there's a lot of places to look. You can look all around you in the world that he made. You see his goodness and beauty everywhere if you have eyes to see it. And you'll find his beauty all over the scriptures. So this is a, 
a call to arms. Bible study is spiritual warfare. If you want to fight for holiness, look at God where he's made himself known in his word. But I want to go even one layer deeper and say the best place to start is where John points our attention one verse before our passage this morning. If you want to see God and see the beauty that will lead you to love him, which will lead you to be like him, the best place to start is what he's shown us in his son. When the, when the word who was with God and was God became flesh so that those who have not seen God could know his glory full of grace and full of truth. That's John's gospel. Look at verse one of John's letter, chapter three. He says, see, look, behold, what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. He's grabbing us by the shoulders. He's shaking us. He's grabbing our faces like he would for a little kid and pointing us at the thing we need to look at if we want to see his beauty and become more and more like him. Look what he did through Jesus to make you his children. The love John has in mind is all over his letter. I think probably the best place to see it is in chapter four, actually. Flip over. Chapter four, beginning in verse seven. John says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. The family resemblance here is love. Anyone who doesn't know God and does not love does not know God because God is love. You see how he's connecting who we are to who God is based on us looking at him. Now look at verse, look at verse nine. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Okay, we could see it now manifest in what that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him in this is love this is the love to behold the love that made us children of God not that we love God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins this is the manner of love he has given to us Look at him laying down his life to bring life to the dead. Look at him laying down his life to turn enemies into friends. Look what it cost him. But more than that, look what he was willing to pay to have you for his child. Look at that. And when you do, when you look at it, John shows us what will happen. You'll start to love other people like he loved you. Looking leads to likeness. You'll look at his love. You'll love him for his love. You'll love like he loves. That's the connection. Friends, in other words, let me just put a point to this. If you want to fight for holiness in your life right now, you need more than willpower. That won't get it done. You need love. You need what Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. Right now, you've got a bunch of old affections in there and they lead you towards all sorts of things that turn your head and ultimately let you down. You need something new. You need displacement. You need a love for him that will lead to a love like his love. And how do you get that? You get it by looking at him loving you. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that God has done what he's done in Jesus so that in the, listen to this. This is so good. This is heaven language here, guys. God has done all he's done to turn the dead into living creatures, the, the, those who are spiritually dead and lost and waiting for wrath into those who are waiting for glory. He's done all of that. Why? 
Ephesians 2 says, so that in the coming ages, in heaven, he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There is so much love in Jesus that we will never get to the bottom of that well age after age after age after age. That's what we'll be doing with our time. Why not start doing it now and watch him renovate you through his beauty? If loving leads to lightness, look at his love until you share it. Our hope shows us how to fight for holiness. The front lines is our hearts and the place to work them is his love for us in Jesus. But I wanna leave you with a word of encouragement, not just how to fight, how, how to fight for holiness, but why the fight is worth it. I think this is in John's mind too in verse three. We need to hear this because let me just say this. The reality, guys, is that in the meantime, while we're waiting on that day, the more we grow as Christians, the closer we get to him, the more pure we become, the more ongoing sin is going to bother us. So if it's true that we're going to be purified little by little over time as we look at all the right things and share his love, that indwelling sin that's still going to be there until heaven is going to bother us more and more and more. We're going to hate it because God does. We're going to see it more like he sees it. And that's not going to be easy for us to deal with. In fact, the more sin we see and the more we hate that sin, the more reason we're going to have for discouragement, if not for outright despair. How do we keep going when we see so much sin in ourselves? The only way to do it, the only way to keep going is if you know where all this is going. Only if you know how this ends. John points us there in verse three. He says, everyone who hopes in him. Did you see that? The object of our hope is, is him. His appearing will finish the job in us. And then look at all the confidence throughout these two verses. It's not a matter of if, but when, he says. We're already God's children. That's great. There's a lot of reason for confidence in that. And then when he appears, not if he appears, we shall be like him. Not we hope to be like him. We shall see him as he is. Not we maybe will get to see him. We know how this ends because our holiness is his personal project. And what Jesus starts, Jesus finishes. He will absolutely, every time, carry on to completion, the good work he starts in you. John's confidence is oozing through this passage. And it reminds me of another passage that I think is worth looking at that echoes all of these themes and really drives them home. Turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Here is Paul making basically the same point that John is making about the connection between what we have already seen, what we will see eventually, and what Jesus is doing to get us there in the meantime. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared. That's about what John says in chapter 3, verse 1. 
and it's bringing salvation for all people. What's it doing now? Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. What's our hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus to us? He's the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. You notice all the connections? His grace has already appeared when the word became flesh. Now that grace is training us in righteousness, but not like test prep kind of training for an exam we hope we get to pass one day. It's training like a parent trains up a child. And verse 14 makes it crystal clear whose work this project really depends on. Verse 14 says, he, Jesus, is purifying a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. Jesus gave himself back then So he could go on with his work of grace now, bringing goodness and beauty out of your life because you belong to him. Because you belong to him, he'll finish what he started. Several of you, many of you have heard me say this before, but I'm just going to use some old material here because I think it works so well to illustrate this point. Many of you know my, my wife has developed over the last 10, 12 years or so a passion for gardening. Not just a passion, but like an obvious, wonderful skill for it. She has transformed our previous home's flower beds into this botanical wonderland, like cheekwood level kind of beauty, where they had basically every square inch full of a plant that needed to be there that was well balanced with all the other plants for time, for season, so that no matter what time of year it was, something good to look at was in these beds. Incredible variety, incredible beauty, something for all times. Many of you will also know, though, that that uh, about three years ago, we had the chance to move uh, into the neighborhood where our church is. A precious gift to our family to be this close to, to where I work and where we meet together as a, as a church and get to know the neighbors around this wonderful place. And we are so glad we got to do that. But I'll tell you, it was not easy to leave those flower beds for good reason. Because this new place... It had some great garden space, uh, but you might call it a blank canvas. <laughs> That'd be the positive spin for desert wasteland. <laughs> At least that's what it was when she took it over. And honestly, even several years in, uh, you know, compared to what she had before in the last place, uh, these flower beds still have a long way to go and they don't have a whole lot to recommend them. But the best thing about these flower beds the most important thing to know about them is that they belong to her now. She bought them at great cost. And now in a way she has, she has given herself to purify them. And it is a good thing to be a flower bed loved by this woman, let me tell you. Because she knows exactly what her plants need to thrive. She knows all their enemies and how to fight them off. She has invested herself in their future. Their flourishing is her passion. And when Paul talks about these upright godly lives we're going to live in the present age. When he talks about a people who are zealous for good works in verse 15. He's not speaking those words behind a wagging finger who says, 
good works or else. He's not speaking the language of threat. He's speaking the language of promise. If you're in Christ, he's describing your future, guaranteed. He's describing your future. You might not be much to look at now, but you are not yet what he will make you to be. You are gonna be zealous for good works. You're gonna thrive because his plants always do. I know, friends, I know that many of you stumbled in here this morning. I know you are sick and tired on the inside by the ongoing battle against sin. I know that for many of you, whatever part of you feels drawn into to what's offered in one sin or another, the better part of you longs to be free from it. And I know for some of you that battle feels hopeless today. And if you had a God who was just standing by, waiting and watching to see if you could make it all the way to the end, to see if you could be worthy of a look at his beautiful face, you would be hopeless this morning. But that is not the sort of God you have. Christ has died, but Christ is risen. And look what he's doing with his life now. He has given himself to purify a people, to make them ready for glory. And when he comes again, you will be perfectly complete. I love how Richard Sibbs, in one of my favorite books of all time, captures this and drives it home. Christ, he says, will take our part against our corruptions. They're his enemies as well as ours. So let us not look so much at who are our enemies as at who is our judge and captain. Not so much at what they threaten, but at what he promises. We have more for us than against us. And what coward wouldn't fight when he's sure of victory? None are here overcome, but he that will not fight. The one who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. That's gonna happen. So carry on. Fight on. When you see him, you'll be like him. We know how this ends. So let's pray together to ask him to do what he said he'd do. Father, we are so grateful to you for speaking to us a word so full of hope. And now we ask you for the strength to hold on and to trust you with what is too much for us. We pray that your children in this room would have the joy, the endless delight of seeing you as you are. And we pray for a greater and greater vision of you every day until the day of his return. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.